young Brazilians Coffee beans grow by the billions So they've got to find those extra cups to fill They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil Hey folks, welcome to the Coffee Geek Podcast, the voice of coffeegeek.com. This is episode number 12, and I'm your host, Mark Prince. And this happens to be August 3rd. Uh, Yeah, 3rd. I don't want to watch. Being that it's August 3rd, it is a new month, so I ask you to go over to podcastalley.com and vote for this podcast again. Every month, all the votes get zeroed out, and we'd sure like to crack that top 50. So visit Podcast Alley and search for the Coffee Geek Podcast and register your vote. Sure would appreciate it. Now, to get some business out of the way, if you'd like to contact the podcast, either by audio mail or email, you can do so. Now, uh, we've changed the number recently. You used to have a toll-free number. Now, I have a Skype-based number. And that Skype-based number has a Seattle area code, which is kind of neat. Anyways, the phone number is area code 206 965-8185. Or you can actually contact us directly through Skype if you're using Skype yourself. Just search for Coffee Geek and call the show through the service. I'm hoping that with this new service, we'll be able to hear some voicemails and audio mail from people outside of North America. And then, of course, if you want to contact me by email, you can send the email to podcast at coffeegeek.com. The emails have been coming in fast and furious, but keep them coming in. I really appreciate it. Wow, we have a really great show lined up for you today. Later on, you're going to be hearing the first of three interviews I conducted with noted author and coffee expert Ken Davids. I, like many others, with a love for coffee and espresso, have cut my teeth on Ken Davids' books. He has three books out there that, that if you're listening to the show and you really like coffee, you probably already know about. There's a book on coffee, there's a book on espresso, and there's a, the absolute epitome of a guide for home roasting first part of the interview is coming up and it's going to be amazing i should point out that his his books were an inspiration for me to even start home roasting and to find out more about coffee and espresso and when i read his books it was almost like hearing a voice out in the wilderness telling me that i wasn't the only one obsessed with quality coffee so really good interview uh stay tuned for that but first i have some news and some updates and a couple of listener emails so let's get into the news first Heinz Public America Coffee is like every, you know, everyone who's really into good quality espresso and coffee and especially knows about barista competitions knows about Heinz Public America Coffee. In Seattle, run by the Johns, as they're called, that's John Hernal and John Sanders, and home of the 2004 United States Barista Champion, Bronwyn Cerna. Amazing cafe, really good vibe down there. I actually preferred the cafe when it was just its little location. Uh, they've, uh, in the last few months, they've expanded to include a former restaurant on the left side of the building when you're facing the building. And um, the wrecking ball is coming down on their building, but now no one knows when it's going to happen. They were actually supposed to first close down, I think, uh, July 1st, then July 15th, then July 28th, and now where it is the end of August or whenever. <laughs> no one knows. And the thing is, I was hoping to go down there on the last day of operation and do some podcast stuff and visit my friends and hang out. Uh, so when I thought they were closing, I think on the 15th or 16th, whatever the Friday was during that week, I had planned to go down for the day as a surprise. And the night before I find out, oh, they're actually not closing until the end of the month. So, again, I made a plan for the last uh, Friday in July to go down. 
And I heard a few days before, oh, guess what? They got a reprieve till the end of August. Now, no one knows when they're closing. So it's kind of up in the air. But if you happen to be in the Seattle area, this is on East Lake Avenue. You got to get down there. Got to pay one more homage visit because Heinz Public Market Coffee is an awesome cafe. Great place to hang out. I hate to see them close, but it's also getting to be a bit of a case of like the boy who cried wolf. Um, you know, sooner or later, just get it over with <laughs> or just stay open. Wouldn't that be awesome? Now, in the second bit, um, last podcast, I was going to mention a KitchenAid ProLine Grinder controversy. And of course, I totally forgot to talk about it. It's not much of a controversy. It's just that um, I'm in the midst of reviewing this product. And the more I review it, the more I test it, the more I am impressed with it. I frankly think that right now it is probably the best grinder for cupping coffee. This is for professionals and consumers under the $500 price point. The design of the grinder is amazing. My friend Barry Jarrett pointed out that the design is actually similar to some bun commercial coffee grinders that retail in the $8 to $1,200 price range. Uh, the kind that you actually see at the grocery store. Now, those aren't bad grinders. They're actually really good grinders. The problem is, is that they're never maintained. So they do a really bad job of grinding that the burrs are probably, you know, 5,000 pounds over their, their grinding limit. And they're dull as hell. But out of the box, those grinders are amazing. And this KitchenAid one is amazing. My friend Alistair, who participates in some of our, our, our roundtables, um, wrote an article or actually wrote a post on a forum recently where he said he sought the, the grinder at a Sears and said, you know, it was a really poor design, really bad burr set. But he didn't quite take it apart properly, and he didn't actually see that inside there's a vertical stack of 58-millimeter burrs that are actually to my eye, a better design than the burst set that comes with a Rocky grinder or that comes with um, even the, the Ranchilio MD40, you know. I would put it on par with the Mazda Mini uh, burst set, even though it is a different cut pattern. And there's an auger inside which actually pre-feeds whole beans into the grinding mechanism. And the result is, is first of all, the grinds fall down a straight path. So there's almost no ground coffee left over in the grinder between uses. And second of all, um, it grinds fast. I mean, not overly fast, but it will grind espresso almost as fast as it grinds press uh, grind. I mean, it's, it, that's what really amazes me about this grinder. So that's the controversy. There's, you know, and also in our, in, in, on Coffee Geek, there's some reviews of the product, and some of them kind of diss the product, and they say that there's not enough adjustment in the grind range, or that the grinder doesn't grind fine enough or coarse enough. That is a limitation of the grinder, in my opinion. Uh, I'd love to see maybe double the amount of grind selections on it. However, you can easily disassemble the front knob on this thing and readjust how fine or how coarse you want this thing to grind. So this thing will grind right down to a Turkish grind, and it will also grind extremely coarse pebbles for press pot. Now, I've tuned the grinder that we're testing. And I think that it does fine at the settings I had. You know, if I tune it to a 7.5 or an 8... I can choke uh, the Lamarzoka machine, and it's fine for, you know, consumer machines like the Solus SL70 or others. And then if I tune it back down to one, and here's the trick, though. If you grind, say, espresso in it, and then you tune it fine, it seems that it takes a little time for, like, the burrs and the springs to really adjust. So, you know, I would tune a course... And I would grind like maybe about five grams of coffee, toss it out, and then you then grind again. And the same thing with espresso. Now, here's the real trick. 
don't adjust that grinder unless it's running. That is absolutely key. I think you can actually screw up the grinder if you try to adjust it while it's not running. So folks who are using this, who have posted negative reviews of it on Coffee Geek, adjust the grind on the fly and learn a bit about the, the grinder. Read the manual. The manual even talks about this. The manual talks about adjusting the grind by removing the front uh, dial knob and changing its position. So read the manual. <laughs> Let's get on to listener emails. The first email comes from Min Giang. I'm sorry, Min, if I got that wrong. Uh, Mark, love the podcast, even though sometimes it gets a bit too off topic. <laughs> uh, it's brought me back to good coffee. Drinking pressed coffee now. It has been a great taste and is much less harsh than what I get at Starbucks. My question is about coffee beans. I went to Murky Coffee here in D.C. Yay, Nick! She, she wrote that, not me. Um, <laughs> uh, just a reminder who Nick Cho is. Nick Cho is, is the fellow who's putting out the Portafilter.net podcast. And he also runs Murky Coffee in Washington, D.C. Anyways, uh, I went to Murky Coffee here in D.C. Yay, Nick! To pick up uh, some espresso beans for my new Solus SL70 using the Rocky as my grinder. And they don't sell espresso beans. They were also... He- what? What? Um, they were also hesitant to suggest one of their blends that would work as an espresso brew. Nick, what the hell's going on at your shop, man? <laughs> Anyways, uh, I guess I never thought about it, but what makes coffee beans or espresso beans? Is there such things? Would beans that brew a good cup of coffee make a good espresso shot or vice versa? Wow. Okay, first of all, I'm sure that Murky Coffee sells an espresso blend. They get their coffee, if I remember correctly, from Counterculture Coffee. And there are some espresso blends out of Counterculture as well as Single Origins and some blends designed for brew. You asked, what makes coffee beans or espresso beans? First of all, there's no distinction. Coffee is coffee is coffee. There's no specific coffee bean that is called an espresso bean. What happens is, is that a roaster will typically build a blend. And that blend is specifically designed to work best as espresso. Let me step back a bit and talk about the brewing methods of drip, uh, vac pot, press pot, whatever, versus espresso. Espresso is the most torturous, damaging, pounding, thunderous <laughs> way of brewing coffee that is used in normal use today. You got to think about it for a second. You are grinding the coffee down to a near Turkish grind, which means it's almost powder. You're throwing 200 Fahrenheit or 95 Celsius water at it at nine bar of pressure, which is roughly 130 pounds per square inch of water pressure. That's a lot of pressure. That's nine atmospheres of pressure. It's not gravity. It's not water just pouring over top. This is like some serious punch packed. So, and that environment is really harsh and it only lasts 25 seconds. So what happens when you brew coffee as espresso is that the way I put it is espresso is like a magnifying glass for coffee. It's going to magnify and highlight all the best things in the coffee bean, but it's also going to highlight and magnify all the bad things in the coffee bean. And because it's such a magnifying glass, this is why you have to do blends. This is why I think that single origin, that means a single farm, single bean, single roast of coffee, does not cut it as espresso with very few exceptions. 
There's a lot of people who disagree with me on this. There seems to be this real trend right now with a lot of coffee and espresso aficionados to brew single-origin espresso shots. I'm not having anything of it because the magnifying glass will point out all the highlights and lowlights. And when you do a single-origin shot, in my opinion, the bean, no matter what bean it is, with very few exceptions is not complex enough. It's not complex enough to give you a lot of different taste experiences in the mouth, good aftertaste, good mouthfeel, as well as masking some of the low points. When you brew single origin as espresso, if that coffee, say, is known for blueberry and cardamom, but also known to be whiny and acidity, and maybe even a little bit of cabbage, when you brew it as espresso, you know, the blueberry may come out but the acidity is just going to bowl you over. It's going to, it's going to like leave, a, you know, like when you suck on a lemon, and it's like, you know, that's what it's going to do to you. However, if you take that coffee and then you put a, you mix it in and blend it with a big body coffee that's got lots of sweetness and extremely low acidity. Let's, let's say a Brazil Cerrado, for example, those two together are just going to like balance out. So the blueberries are still going to come out, but the acidity is go- in, in the blueberry coffee is going to be masked by the big body and sweetness in the Brazil. And that's why you blend for espresso. So, you know, it's a controversial standpoint of mine, I guess, apparently recently, but I still don't believe that any single origin can cut it as espresso. Espressos must be blends. And they must be blended by a good roaster who really knows their stuff who pulls shots, who knows the intricacies of espresso, who every morning they have espresso shots and they check out their blend and they know how it works. They know how it will stand the torturous brewing that you put it through. So to get back to your question, I know that was a bit long-winded. Any bean can be used for espresso. There's no rule. It's up to your taste buds. However, my personal opinion is, is that blends designed to be brewed as espresso, that's what you should be drinking. You know, you can drink anything you want, but in my druthers, my world, I prefer blends. Anyways, man, I hope that answers your question. Now for our next email from Deborah Schumacher out of Seattle. Uh, She writes in, loving the podcast. I have a crappy crux at home right now and we never use it for espresso. I want to start looking for a machine, but I have to ask, what is the difference between a steam-driven and a pump-driven espresso machine besides the obvious price? My Krups is steam-driven, and I know better ones are pump-driven. But what I'm hoping for is an explanation on how the machines work differently and why the pump isn't better. Now, Deborah has a few other questions, which Deborah I can't get to, but this is just a kudo I want to read. Again, love the show. My favorite bit so far has been the news spots, and I love your news gal. I also really like the roundtables. Well, I'm glad someone likes the news person. There's, well, there's a thread going on on Coffee Geek right now where I was criticized for being abusive towards Jeanette. And if people listening to this don't get the fact that Jeanette and I are just playing off each other in the news segment and we're joshing each other and it's very mutual and it's certainly very agreeable by her for the segment because she didn't want to read news just on her own. She felt that would be too dry and boring. So she actually asked me to participate and be sort of the buffer for her for the news stories. Anyways, I'm, I'm glad, Deborah, that you enjoyed it. Now to your question about uh, steam versus pump-driven machines. Okay, steam-driven espresso machines, like the Krups, like a DeLonghi, like, you know, a Salton, like a whatever brand, 
I guess the coolest thing I can say about those is that they are actually very closely based on the design of the original espresso machines that existed between 1905 and 1947 with the Gaggia Crema lever machine. In other words, they're steam-driven. Those machines, you know, espresso right up until past World War II was steam-driven espresso. Now, you'll find people that are really down on those machines and they're snobs. And, and I'm as, as much a uh, culprit of that as other people. Uh, however, uh, you can make a pretty decent shot of what I call mocha coffee or double strong coffee with them. And certainly, you know, using them to do, you know, sort of a poor man's cappuccino or lattes or cafe au lait is definitely possible. In fact, those machines are perfect for doing that. They do use steam pressure to push water through the ground coffee. And the steam pressure generally peaks out at 1.5 bar which I believe is like about 40 pounds of pressure, maybe 30, 30 pounds of pressure. Pump-driven machines push, as I explained in the previous email, push water through a bed of coffee at 130 pounds per square inch of pressure, or 9 bar, 9 atmosphere. That pressure, combined with CO2 and other elements, emulsifies oils in the ground coffee, which ends up in the cup as crema. You don't get crema, genuine crema, in steam-driven machines. If, if there are some, I have noted that there are some steam-driven espresso machines and also some, some mocha pots uh, by Bialetti that have what call what they call a crema enhancer or crema-producing elements. Those don't produce crema. What they do is they actually force certain amounts of coffee through jets, which does a frothing, if you will, of the coffee and creates kind of a golden froth on top. But that is not crema. That is not genuine crema. And there, there really is a difference. What they produce and said is, is kind of akin to what you see on brewed coffee. If you brew coffee using really fresh coffee that was just ground, you'll notice that on top that there's this foam on top of the filter that, that creates while it's brewing. And it's, the foam is called a bloom. And basically that's CO2 kind of foaming up and creating these large bubble foams. I would say that the crema enhancing devices on mocha pots and on very few steam driven machines, if you end up getting a little froth on top, that's what you're seeing. You're not seeing genuine crema, which is the emulsification of coffee oils. Uh, this is quite different from frothing liquid coffee. That is pretty much the major difference, and I hope that answers your question. It, you know, I don't want to dis I don't want to diss steam driven machines too much. I've dissed them far too much in the past. They have a role in coffee. They make really good coffee. I recently just bought a new steam driven machine, and I actually use it to make cafe au lait, which is very similar to what what people have in Paris every morning. And you know, enjoyed for what it is, it's a really good coffee maker. If you're looking for espresso, that's not what it is. Espresso is on a completely different level. Anyways, Deb, I hope that answers your question. And again, thank you for writing in, and I really appreciate the kudos on the show. Next email comes from Neil Batchafor. I hope that got that right, Neil. And it's a very simple statement. It says, apparently coffee should be brewed between 190 and 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Are there any coffee makers out there that do this? Yes, and their names are not Krupps or Braun or Sunbeam, or <laughs> Proctor Silex, or a few others. Um, most of the mainstream coffee brewers, these are auto-drip coffee makers, simply do not produce hot enough water 
for coffee, for coffee brewing, for proper extraction. It's it's a crying shame, you know. Even even the thermal based ones, the ones that brew into a thermal pot instead of into a glass pot, simply don't do it because they're using the same guts inside that the uh, glass brewers are using. There are some notable exceptions, though. All the upper end Capresso auto drip brewers brew at proper temperatures. I've tested three of them. I've tested the um, MT500, which is an awesome coffee brewer. I think it's about 170 bucks right now, but trust me, worth the money. The stainless steel craft does the job. It brews at hot enough temperatures. It looks gorgeous. It has a water filter system. It's it's a great coffee brewer. Another one is actually the, um, I forget what it's called, but it's the Compresso one that has the, again, uh, stainless steel thermal carafe, but it also frosts milk, and it's around 200, 210. That one, again, awesome, awesome. So Compresso models, I definitely recommend. Another one uh, that I could very happily recommend are the Technoform coffee makers. And if you look on coffeegeek.com in the professional reviews section, you'll see I did a review on the Technoform coffee maker, and that's T E C H. N-I-V-O-R-M. You know, I can never spell out loud. I would flunk a spelling bee if I ever went to one. Um, Another one I tested recently, which I think is no longer on the market, which is a crying shame, is the Melita Clarity Coffee Brewer. And that one brews actually at about 205 Fahrenheit. Great brewer. And the last one I think everyone's talking about recently is the Scandinavian Design Presso Coffee Maker. Those ones all brew at nearly perfect temperatures. Unfortunately, I've never tested a brawn that can brew at a proper temperature, and I've tested, I think, six of them now, and the same goes for Krups. I think the hottest I ever tested a Krups at, it was the Pro Aroma, and I think it was about 185 or 182 Fahrenheit, and Krups, 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 that's too cold. It's too cold. Coffee has to be brewed with water that is between, at the very minimum, 192 Fahrenheit and 205 Fahrenheit. And ideally, you want about 197 to 200. That's 95 to 96 degrees Celsius. Krups, Braun, please do something about your brewers. They don't brew hot enough. Anyways, Neil, I hope that answers your question and you got to hear me plead a bit. Uh, Let's see here. We have another email, and this one is from Reese Justin. And Reese writes in, Hi, Mark. I'd like to make uh, this an email praise, but I do have a small question. I think what you're doing with the podcast is wonderful. It's almost indulgent to listen to an entire show about coffee. Thanks, Reese. It's awesome. Here's my question. What is the proper way to drink an espresso out of a demi cup? I tend to enjoy my shot a bit after it's been served at the bar, and I tend to take it fairly quickly thereafter. Can you please explain to me the etiquette for drinking an espresso? And he also writes, P.S. Bata Sawinski, she rocks. <laughs> Thanks, Reese. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you pose this question because, uh, again, I'm going to mention Portafilter.net in the podcast. Uh, Nick has started up a recent segment that's called uh, What is Chris Tacey Thinking About This Week? Now, Chris Tacey is, is uh, a good friend of, of Coffee Geek. He posts regularly under the name of Malachi in our forums and uh, very knowledgeable on coffee, and he gets a lot of people thinking. And I'll also say this. There's been a lot of times where I don't agree with what Chris is saying. <laughs> and in his most recent What is Chris Tacey Thinking segment on Portafilter.net, that was one of his statements. He said, do you know that most people don't know how to drink espresso properly? And Chris gave a very definitive way of drinking espresso. And guess what? 
Chris, I don't agree with you. In my opinion, there is no bad way to drink espresso. Well, within limits. You obviously don't want to leave it on the counter for five minutes before you go to it. But there really isn't. I mean, you know, there's so many different ways to enjoy espresso. I, I could say how I enjoy it, but that you know that wouldn't give you a clue either because I enjoy espresso in different ways too. Sometimes I drink espresso as espresso correcto, which is a very specific way to drink espresso uh, using grappa. And here I'll tell you how it is quickly. What you do is you get your ounce of espresso, ounce and a quarter, in your your porcelain cup, and you have an ounce of of grappa. You take your grappa and you pour one third of it into your espresso shot. And then you enjoy your espresso. You can take one, two, three, four, seven zips, whatever the hell you want. And when it's done, and there's the crema on the side walls of the porcelain cup, you take another third of your grappa, pour it in, swirl it around, and then you drink that. And then to finish it off, you take that last third of grappa and just toss it back. And mm, that's an espresso correcto. That's one way. Um, another way, when I'm evaluating espresso, I drink it radically different from when I'm just drinking espresso. When I'm evaluating espresso, I evaluate kind of like as if I'm cupping. I'll take it to my lips. I'll take a big whiff of the, the crema and, and the smell of the coffee. And then I'll take a spoon and I'll spoon a demi-tasse spoon, a very tiny one. And I'll spoon off just a little bit of the crema and I'll taste the crema straight up. And, you know, crema, it's really important to drink crema from time to time to sort of get a sense of what that element of espresso is. And once that's done, I take my first sip and my zip sounds just like this. Let me do that again. Almost like cupping. And what I'm doing is I'm aerating the espresso. I'm bringing it into my mouth uh, so that... The liquid covers my entire tongue almost at the virtual same time. And I'm tasting it with all my tongue experiences with sweet, salty, bitter, the whole works. And then, you know, I'll do the same again for the second zip. And then I'll leave the espresso sitting with about a third of it left and I'll let it cool down. And I'll taste it again lukewarm. And that's how I evaluate espresso. That's not how I drink it normally. How I drink it normally is I put it on a saucer. I add a tiny little bit of sugar. I don't stir the sugar much because I like to let it sit in the bottom of the cup and have it as my last zip. And I'll take my first zip and it'll just be normal, you know, like that. And I'll enjoy it. I'll savor the aftertaste. I'll savor the whole shot. I'll wait, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 seconds and then take my second zip and then I'll wait a little bit again and take my third zip and that's how it works, you know? There's no right way to drink espresso. Drink it the way you enjoy it. The only things I'll say where it's wrong is don't drink it cold. At least don't drink the entire thing cold. If you want to evaluate how it tastes when it cools down, that's another thing. I hope that answers your question, Reese, and thanks for writing in. Now... We're done. We're done. We're done Mark talking. Except you're going to hear Mark talking again, but you're going to hear another guy talk even more. Yes, it's the first of our three interviews that we're going to space out over the next month with Ken Davids, noted author and publisher. And in this first interview, Ken's going to talk about his start in professional coffee. He's going to talk about his books. He's going to talk about favorite roasters, favorite coffees, the whole works. And I really hope you enjoy, folks. And just to remind you again, you can reach us uh, via voicemail at 206-965-8185 or look for us under the name Coffee Geek in Skype. Or you can send an email to podcast at coffeegeek.com and get over to Podcast Alley, look for the Coffee Geek podcast and vote for us. Now, enjoy the interview with Ken.
I'm on the phone today with Ken Davids, and uh, Ken is a an author, a consultant, a professional coffee cupper, and an all-around coffee expert. And uh, he's written uh, probably the best-selling books for coffee and espresso for consumers. And uh, Ken, uh, you're in Portland, right? Uh, no, I'm no? in uh, San Francisco. San Francisco. Oh, that's right. That's right. Why do I think everyone's in in Portland these days? Well, it's because everybody's moving to Portland. Because, <laughs> uh, it's cheaper than the San Francisco area, I guess. So how are you doing, Ken? I understand you've had a busy past month. I've had had a busy past month uh, with travel and uh, consultants' demands and the demands of my own uh, need for good coffee. <laughs> well, I'm glad I was able to get you on the phone for this. So I'm going to start right off, uh, Kim, by asking you about how you got your start in coffee. Well, I started in coffee, I suppose. Uh, there's two ways of answering a question like that. One way is to talk about how uh, how you first one first became enthusiastic about coffee. And uh, Well, why don't we talk about that first? How did you first get enthusiastic about coffee? <laughs> well, like most people, it's when I went to Europe, actually, because at the time, the uh, coffee in the United States was largely so bad that uh, it wasn't a very attractive beverage. And uh, so uh, I think I, like many people, my generation, I encountered uh, better coffee in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, coffee, a kind of coffee culture, too, of course, uh, in Europe and also around universities. I went to, came to Berkeley, and there was a nascent little coffee culture in the Berkeley area. Yeah. That would have been sur- that would have been fostered by Pete's Coffee. Is that correct? Well, I don't want to date myself, <laughs> but uh, no, Pete's Coffee uh, came into existence about the time that I actually entered the coffee business. So uh. this little uh, kind of experience with uh, the the wonderful uh, kind of reverie of sitting in coffee houses uh, high on caffeine and uh, thinking great thoughts uh, preceded my uh, the Pete's and my getting to coffee business. Basically, I was looking, I was teaching in a, at an art college and was a little, felt stifled by teaching, I guess, and wanted to test myself in business in some way and trying to think of a business that would also be exciting and uh, thought of coffee because I liked coffee. Started a cafe with a lawyer partner, and at the time, I think that was the third cafe to open in Berkeley. Wow. And uh, right about that time, Pete's, the Vine Street store, Pete started his Vine Street store. Now, I didn't roast coffee. I bought it, purchased it from Capricorn Coffee, which uh, was, along with Freed Teller and Freed, was one of the pioneering uh, kind of specialty roasters in the Bay Area. And they both preceded uh, Pete. So your, your, your interest in the world of professional coffee started with opening a coffee shop. That's right. And uh, what was the name of it? That was called the Salamandra. The Salamandra, and that was in Berkeley? Yeah, on Telegraph Avenue. It uh, was a, a big place, and we had to, to be open from 7 a.m. for breakfast until 2 a.m. with most less coffee and more beer and wine. I love it. And, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> no, it was great. It was a classic coffee house. We had entertainment at night, uh, you know, the usual poetry night, comedy night, jazz night, et cetera, et cetera. So it was definitely one of those beatnik cafes. It was, that's true. But uh, I didn't like retail, particularly those long hours. There's always something wrong, you know. I thought I had a day off and somebody, oh, Ken, the refrigerator's broken. (laughs) 
So, uh, but I love the coffee, so that sort of confirmed my interest in coffee. And after uh, I sold it, I had uh, made a little money. Well, we only had it for two years. I sold it, thought, well, I'll uh, get a collaborator to write a book on coffee. Interesting. And, and I, I know you don't want to date yourself too much, but this was in the, the 1970s, is that correct? That's right, yeah. And when I was in kindergarten, of course. Uh, <laughs> Ken, I've seen you in person many times. You don't look that old. <laughs> uh, so the uh, at the time, the specialty coffee community, I think, you know, consisted of Erna Knutson of Knutson Coffee, who was a pioneering coffee specialty importer, along with Milt Montano. I think his company was called Union Coffee, and they were the two importers who kind of, I think, set the structure the specialty industry, the importing industry. And there was Alfred Pete who imported some of his own coffees as well as purchasing from from others. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple roasters like Capricorn. And so basically uh, nobody in that group wanted to collaborate on a book with me. So I basically sort of, I had time, so I kind of threw myself into coffee for about a year, cupping and roasting and sort of being a general pest and hanger on <laughs> and uh, <laughs> traveling and spending some time with mm-hmm. coffee people and then basically doing my a lot of my own cupping. Mm-hmm. So when I wrote the coffee uh, the book, finally, it was more from a position of authority. And this first book, uh, Ken, it, it, what was the name of the first book? Uh, coffee, A Guide to Buying, Brewing, and Enjoying. So it's the one that we can still get today, obviously, in a later edition. Yeah, it's a fifth edition now, and there's also a British edition. So I basically, in some ways I felt like I've written six books instead of one book because so much changes every time I do a new edition. Now, uh, when you wrote that first book, it's obviously quite different from writing a novel. Right. What what kind of process did you go through, and what sort of things did you learn uh, about writing that first book? That's an interesting question. Well, what I thought I learned uh, mostly has uh, changed. <laughs> I, mean, I thought I learned, and in some ways did, learned about coffee type associated with coffee origins and, and how they cup. Now, uh, in retrospect, of course, uh, you know, uh, the types of coffee that were being imported by Erna and Milt Montanos at that time were classic types that represented the best and the most clearly defined coffees available from those origins. So I think with all of us in specialty coffee over the years, we've as we there's more and more travel and contact and familiarity with origins, we discover of course that there are many more kinds of coffee types that you can dig out of an origin. Mm-hmm. And the general kind of generalizations that I dealt with then that were familiar, I still hear them. Uh, Sumatra caught taste this way as though, you know, something in the air in Sumatra that makes coffee taste that way instead of a series of very specific cultural and uh, natural reasons for the why that particular type of Sumatra tastes the way it does. Right. So, uh, I guess what I learned were those basics, which are still current in the industry, but are changing. Now, of course, I find myself arguing against the very kinds of information that I put out in that first book, but I I don't think I can be blamed because that's what the industry knew then. Right. And when when you were writing this first book, um, 
what was your intended audience for the book? Was it the general consumer, or were you writing something for coffee professionals? Well, I think throughout my career as a writer and communicator about coffee, my goal has always been, and my my audience has always been, uh, consisted of this fictional group of people who are not coffee professionals, but are so passionately interested in coffee that they have uh, do nothing but try to learn about it. It's uh, a- in other words, a kind of a invented audience of uh, of ultimate aficionados. It sounds like you were writing for Alt.Coffee about 15 years before it existed. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Wow. It's, so uh, I always tried to create that audience. Uh, it was based on the wine paradigm, of course. Now, I'm not saying, as we all know, coffee is very different from wine and shouldn't be confused mm-hmm. in a technical details, but as far as the audience, that was the audience I had in mind. It was the beginnings of this kind of explosion of interest in wine happening in the Bay Area at the time, and so that was my model. And after it was published, were you happy with the the sales numbers? Were you surprised? Well, it bounced up and down, <laughs> the sales numbers. I mean, initially what happened was it came out with two or three other books the same year that were all books that emerged from the, the beginnings of the specialty coffee movement. And uh, it's the one that survived, and I think it had by far the most influence of those books. And it always sold. It's always sold. I mean, actually, it sells less now than it did back then because there are so many other books on coffee competing. But it was a pleasant, steady sale. Well, I think one of the real positives about all your books is the fact that they are so inexpensive. It makes them accessible to people. Yeah, that's always been my goal, to write something that would be accessible, that would be as technically accurate as I could make it, given industry knowledge, but accessible, you know, Mm -hmm. lively enough so somebody says. I've always tried to evolve that audience through my writing. I'm not sure why or what sources in my psyche uh, that comes from, but I think I have a good rationale for it now, of course, which is that uh, it helps the coffee growers, of course. Mm-hmm. Not sure I thought about about that back <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, I don't think many do, but I, I do like the change that we're seeing in the industry as a whole uh, with the recognition given towards the farmers, especially. Right. I as, think I, I do know that one of the things that attracted about me about coffee as opposed to, say, wine, the fact that it involves the tropics, which I've always loved, and and uh, places that are more exotic than France. So um, <laughs> in that sense, I guess I always had that motivation, you know, to kind of create more uh, richer communication through coffee among cultures not respected. And your books go a long way to see in my in my communication with consumers, um, I find that there's still a fair number of them out there who believe that coffee is just something that is mechanically produced, or you know the the roasted coffee bean grows that way on a tree. Right, exactly. Or it's a bean and it grows in the ground. That's why it's brown. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. And um, actually, you know, that, that brings me to my next question for you. I want to ask you that after this first book was published, how did it change your relationship with others in the industry? And how did it, how did it change your status in the industry? 
Well, at the time, early on, there wasn't much industry. Uh, you know, it was uh, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have the SCAA hadn't been created, so we didn't have meetings. It was kind of difficult to network. Nevertheless, I did network. I remember going out and cupping with George Howell soon after he opened his business, mm-hmm. and uh, I managed to make connections with some growers and people in other parts of the country. And I, 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 I guess all I would say is that we all had the same goal, which was to advance specialty coffee as a pleasure and as an object of connoisseurship. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, and I think the book hap- helped a lot in that respect. It crystallized a, a lot of ideas, some of which I think were wrong in res- retrospect, not the ideas, but the information. But nevertheless, it crystallized the certain kinds of thinking and perceptions around okay. the beverage. It had a lot of influence. You know, I would go to people's houses who were kind of taste leaders in in you know the new food movement in the United States, and I'd almost always see my book on the shelf, for example. So, so you you have this first pub published, and and I guess you have a sense of where you're going, um, you know, in in your life in terms of where your employment's going to be, everything else. Uh, were you did you just work on editing this book for a second edition, or did you start thinking about when did you start thinking about other books? I thought of started thinking about other books almost immediately because the espresso thing started taking off or looked immediately to me <laughs> as though it were taking off almost after I soon after I published this first book. That was I published the first book more around the uh, the whole idea of specialty coffee, not simply the uh espresso component. So almost right away I wanted to do a book on espresso and it was very curious from the publisher because she said, "What? A book on espresso?" <laughs> no. <laughs> At any rate, uh other people beat me to the espresso because the publisher wasn't interested. So I think I think my book was maybe the third book out on espresso, but by, but uh, she soon saw the light and jumped in and and I brought out the book on espresso. I don't think that's been as an important book for the coffee industry because uh, there have been other good books. But again, mine is for the is not for the coffee house owner. Exactly. (laughs) It's for the aficionado who wants to make the perfect shot and wants to know how to make all the drinks and so on. So, in in the coffee book, do you talk a bit in your first edition of the coffee book? Did you talk about espresso at all? Yes, I talked about it extensively. Um, now, I don't have a copy in front of me to consult because I'd have to jog my memory about it, but I know that I spent a lot of time writing about uh, the atomic and how you could make decent espresso from the atomic. And I imagine that was because in when you wrote this book in the 1970s, there probably wasn't any real espresso machines available for North American consumers except for lever machines. Right. And... Um, do you remember the first time that you actually saw a consumer-driven uh, pump machine for North America, or was it in Italy that you saw them at first? I think I saw the baby gaja in Italy. Okay. But, uh, again, you know, I, uh, I'm i sorry, Mark, but I oh, have okay. to go back and look at what I wrote in that first edition, and that will probably jog my memory. Um, now, after the... so. You went through, I guess, uh, a few editions of the coffee book, and you said your second book was is the espresso book, right? 
And when when did your home roasting book come out? When was that first written? This was in, again, I have to look at the copyright page to make sure I don't, 1996. I'd written about home roasting from the very start. Okay. So the first, the you know, the Coffee, A Guide to Buying, Brewing, and Enjoying, which came out in the 70s, I had a section on home roasting. Oh, interesting. Now, what were people using in the 1970s to home roast? I believe I was using, I came up with a technique for rattling uh, beans around in a little light pan. (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably Uh, the technique going back several hundred years. (laughs) Right. Well, when I first learned to home roast, it was out of desperation. I was living in a place where I couldn't get any decent coffee. And so I I bought some green beans and I roasted them by stirring them in a in a frying pan. <laughs> and uh, but it uh, you know I could tell already that uh, even though I wasn't a coffee guy yet that that was uh, scorching the beans. So I came up for the first book I came up with this uh, which I basically just invented, not a very complex invention, but a lightweight frying pan with a lid and you put the beans in and just kind of shook them. You had three books out. Uh, by the mid-90s, you had three books out. There was the, the coffee book, the espresso book, and the home roasting book. And right. at that point, the Internet was just starting to be sort of mainstream. Right. Was was the home roasting book in any way influenced by the Internet or what you read or what you you were checking out at the time? No, it was not, actually. When, when would you say that the internet started to play a role into your research and and your consideration when you were writing, especially with your revisions, your your editions? I always tried. As soon as the internet came up, I always I I immediately saw the the great advantage of the internet for aficionados, and I tried to put uh, references to useful internet sites in the uh, resource sections of the books. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think that I, until the second home roasting book came out, I'm not sure that I really used it much myself. So you were still using tool. you were still using the old, uh, or I shouldn't I don't want to call them old because that degrades them. But I mean, you were still using your your methods of networking, going to the trade shows, and and giving public talks and things like that. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would say about the home roasting that. When I, even with the first edition, when I went around and uh, gave little ta- uh, talks at bookstores, or usually at the time it was bookstores rather than cafes, uh, invariably somebody would come sidling up to me, sometimes two or three people, say, well, I'm, I'm roasting coffee at home. And they would have invented some method that they would share with me. And so... Uh, it was quite grassroots then. Exactly, it was grassroots, but it didn't have you know the internet gave that that community a, a, a collective voice, and the, because these people they assumed until they heard my talk they assumed that nobody else home, home roasted and they invented their own <laughs> method. And well, uh, I think you know in the the coffee, especially the consumer heightened aficionado market. I think people definitely lived in a vacuum right up until the time the Internet came around. Sure. There's many communities like that uh, uh, that uh, where people were so widely spaced uh, geographically that they couldn't come together over their uh, enthusiasms right. until the Internet. And, and we uh, should mention that, actually, Ken. What, what site is that? 
That's uh, Coffee Review, www.coffeereview.com. And what goes on at that website? Uh, well, it's uh, we review coffees, uh, not green coffees. We started reviewing green coffees with panels of uh, professionals, but uh, dropped that. Uh, it's a long story, but we dropped it anyhow and, and concentrated again on, the, on what I'm most interested in, which is building a sophisticated aficionado base. And so we were production coffees. Now, there's coffees that are available roasted and packaged or roasted in bulk retail to consumers. So it's like a wine. It's a wine spectator of coffee, basically. Right. And uh, this has been very influential. Uh, it doesn't impinge on the world of home roasters much, but very influential. When you re review those coffees, do you have requirements for the people submitting the coffees to you about roast dates and things like that? Well, right now we buy the coffees and you... try to do it anonymously. Interesting. That's that's actually quite uh, surprising. You find that surprising? I do, I do. I would, I would have just naturally expected that that uh, the roasters from around North America and the world would be submitting you coffees constantly. Well, they are, but we try not to do it that way. Well, that's really good. Uh, so uh, we have a nomination form, and we ask people to nominate coffees. Uh, I, I like to get nominations from readers, but uh, obviously roasters can nominate their own coffees. And then we try to buy them. Now, with small roasters, they're they're aware that they've nominated their coffees and for which reviews, and so they're kind of watching. <laughs> so the an anonymity doesn't quite work out. But with the larger roasters, of course, they don't know what's happening. So right. uh, we do get a, a, a fair, I think, representing of what a consumer would get if they went online and purchased that coffee. And in terms of, say, the, the coffees you've tried in the last six months, are there any that are real standouts for you that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, I thought it was interesting that the, this coffee, a Panama uh, La Esmeralda that uh, The auction coffee. The, the auction coffee that got the world's highest green coffee price, that uh, it was uh, splendid coffee. I mean, I was afraid when I reviewed it that it would come out just nice and and people would think, well, what's all the fuss, and I'm being ripped off. But, uh, I mean, it's not, it was retails for four times as much as a normal coffee, and it's not four times as good as a really good Ethiopia yoga chefe or something, but um, it's an exceptional coffee and very interesting. So that uh, stays with me, and I reviewed it twice, and, you know, we do these blind with, coated with three-digit numbers, and I cupped them twice and, uh, in different orders. And uh, I did that with this coffee. came up with a 92 both times, which is a very good score. Wow. So uh, that's a good sign for the industry, I think. I think so, too. It, you know, and that a high-priced coffee would, at least to my palate, uh, pop consistently off the table as, a, as an exceptional coffee. And are there any sort of standout roasters in the United States that, that you feel confident in saying you can never go wrong with them or you'll almost never go wrong buying from them? Well, that's a difficult question, of course, because I don't want to alienate anybody and I may be missing people. That's okay. But, I mean, uh, if how about you just give us a random sampling of three from your top ten? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just give you some that I – these roasters don't always have 90 coffees. 
but they occasionally have 90 or 93 coffees. And typically, when they fail, they don't fall under, say, 86 or 87. Okay. So that, to me, is exceptional because I know with my clients, I have a hard time doing that for them mm-hmm. when I'm <laughs> making the decisions. It's a difficult. Coffee is a difficult business more difficult than wine to maintain consistency. I agree. So uh, in that sense, uh, I think intelligence in Chicago, Green Mountain, d- despite the size, is a incredibly good, consistent producer of good coffee. And they're in uh, Vermont? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so Green Mountain, Bucks County is uh, persistent. Uh, I've never had any per- coffee from Bucks County. Well, people in the Philadelphia area take them for granted because they're very dominant in that area. But uh, they do a very, very good job. Interesting. Again, what I'm talking about are the elite coffees from these companies. Exactly. But whenever I drop below the elite, you know, I I haven't been disappointed. Uh, The quality is still there. It just may not be exceptional. So let's see. I said Green Mountain, Bucks County, uh, Intelligentsia in Chicago, Roastery in Kansas City. That's um, Danny O'Neill. Yeah, his company. Um, usually, the, the a small roaster, Supreme Bean in uh, in Los Angeles. I've had really interesting coffees from those folks, but it was a few years back. Yeah, problem with smaller roasters is they have trouble with consistency because mm-hmm. one guy is doing everything. Uh, so I feel for them now. You know, as far as espressos, there's been an explosion of these small companies produce just outstanding espresso blends. Paradise Roasters is one it's in Minnesota. I'll give them a little bit of a plug because they just signed on as an advertiser on Coffee Geek. <laughs> I've not tried their coffee yet, but uh, I was really happy to see them sign on because, well, I love it when, when businesses I'm not familiar with come on board with us. So I'll give them a plug, too. They're they're supporting the Coffee Geek website. Right. <laughs> And uh, Stumptown, oh, yes. Portland. Hairbender uh, is a very interesting I'm blend. probably missing some really important people. And then there's, you know, uh, big companies that like uh, Gavinia, which is a huge company in Los Angeles, although it's completely family-owned. You mm-hmm. know, they have the Don, and I'm going to say Don Francisco, I hope that's right, line of coffees that are, by and large, really quite good. Interesting. Um, I have one more question for you, Ken, and it involves uh, a couple of years back. I, I arranged with you to um, have a discussion and a meeting with the people who you were writing for 20, 25 years ago, and they existed for the last 10 or 15 years. And, and they're the, the, the people who participate in a news group called Alt.Coffee. And I believe in Boston at the SCAA show, we made arrangements for you to have a discussion and a meeting with them. And that was kind of the first time, I guess, outside of a a coffee house or a bookstore that you got to meet these kind of people. Right, I think so, except, as I said, uh, sometimes at talks they would come up and uh, start talking. But this was pretty concentrated. This was uh, These were all these hardcore aficionados. Right, right. And how, what was that experience like for you? And and what did you what did you think about that whole process? What do you think about a news group like Alta Coffee? Well, I'm all in favor of everything that that helps create uh, a culture of connoisseurship around coffee. So I love it. I never saw so much adoration in one room. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. 
uh, those people are like, oh, Ken Davis, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're the kind of people that I try to create, uh, help no, create. So that sounds all wrong, like I'm creating Frankenstein. <laughs> no, there's these people who are great. Uh, uh, this is the kind of culture I've tried to help create through my work throughout my life. Well, in a way, too, I guess it's kind of like if if I was in your shoes, I would also see it as kind of a vindication of what I've done in terms of the writing, mm-hmm. you know, well, because I, so. I think you had a huge part. I, I don't think there's any Alta Coffee people, person, or for that matter, any serious uh, coffee geek member who hasn't read at least one of your books. Or at least skimmed through them. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you know, I think that you've gone a long way to sort of help foster that community. I won't, I won't go as far to say that without Ken Davids, there would not be an Alta Coffee. But I think that without a Ken Davids, there probably wouldn't be as many informed people in the early days of Alta Coffee. <laughs> and um, what have you done since then? That was sort of the first time you met these Altis, as they're called. Uh, I understand that you've been involved in other uh, events that the SCAA has put on and things. How did those go? Well, last time I did a, 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 a tasting of uh, based on the uh, what to me is one of my obsessions right now, which is uh, making people aware of the importance of uh, processing as a uh, as a creative tool and creating distinctive sensory profiles for coffee. So. Uh, something presented in the consumer track, but there were some uh, roasters there as well, and uh, it went extremely well, I thought. Interesting. I I enjoyed it more than almost anything I've done at the SCAA. Um, Whether it was because I finally got to do something exactly as I wanted instead instead of responding to SCAA uh, programs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't my idea. It was Ted Lingle's idea, but it, it was an idea that I loved. Right. And uh, or it was just simply that the audience was really uh, interested and committed, and it was mostly alt dot coffee people with some some you know the kind of uh, professionals that that have risen have have kind of bubbled out of that world. I I know that the highlight for most people though was that. Uh was that sort of very short discussion and meet the authors and meet, uh, especially meet Ken David's thing that went on. Uh, I know people love just uh, being, a, I, it was at a restaurant or something that I think Dallas Brothers sponsored. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, in fact, I think I bought you a scotch. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't remember, but that's a good sign. You probably <laughs> bought it then. <laughs> well, anyways, Ken, I'm going to wrap this up for now, but we're going to, we're going to be talking to you soon again about, um, home roasting and cupping, and then we're going to be talking to you about uh, your professional life outside of consumers, the the things that you do in the the professional world of coffee, including consulting, the cup of excellence, and other things. And I'm looking forward to it. With all my things. Thanks well, a lot, Mark. Thank you very much, Ken. And again, people, when if they want to find you online, they can find you at coffeereview.com. Well, thanks, Ken, and we'll thank talk you, to you Mark. soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. So what do we got here? 59 minutes, 29 seconds. Wow. Okay, so this show ran a bit long, but wasn't that interview cool? 
and more is to come. More is to come down the road. Not the next show, but uh, the next few shows. Anyways, folks, I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to try to finish this at 60 minutes exactly. Ronnie, again, to email us at podcast at coffeegeek.com or give us a call at uh, the number I mentioned at the start of the show. I can't remember. Anyways, thanks for tuning in to episode 12, and I look forward to talking to you folks very, very soon. Enjoy your cup of coffee, and remember, it's about the quality.